Welcome to the eighth episode of the HLI podcast. Today I have with me Peter Illig, Chief Executive Officer and General Counsel of the National Certification Council for Activity Professionals, NCAP. Welcome, Peter. I'm delighted to have you here today to share about yourself and your work with activity professionals. I remember a meeting in 2016 in Geneva through the North American Lawyers Association. You were at the time of the World Organization of the Scout Movement as their General Counsel and Director of External Relations. I was about to start my legal career and very interested in the various legal paths available. Your commitment to mission-driven organizations really stood out to me. Could you share with us a bit about your personal and professional background? Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I've, I've watched uh, with happiness as your career has evolved, and uh, the Health Law Institute is something uh, very impressive. So congratulations on that. You know, my background... I've always been attracted to things that were interesting as well as meaningful and purposeful. That's just my nature. You know, I grew up uh, in Western New York state, not a overly exciting place, but geographically beautiful. (laughs) Um, And then pursued uh, undergraduate studies in philosophy that led me to law. And, uh, you know, I'm admitted to practice in New York I did postgraduate studies and earned an LLM in international law through the University of Notre Dame in London, England. It was a very exciting program in international law. And then I've I've worked around the world a lot in Asia and Europe and a bit in uh, Latin America on international development projects that focus on what I refer to as integral human development. That's just who I am and what I've pursued. Impressive. I think, you know, our background really prepares us for things to come. And, you know, right now we find ourselves in the middle of a pandemic. This is really what dominates, I think, our lives and our minds right now, both personally and professionally. How has it been during these times for you? Well, interestingly, um, working in long-term care, you know, acutely aware of the impact disproportionately Uh, on the long-term care sector. Uh, Personally, uh, short story on on New Year's Eve, uh, this past New Year's Eve, I started to feel tired, more tired than normal. Um, And on New Year's Day realized I had lost my sense of smell and taste. So um, got tested on the 2nd of January when both the rapid and uh, PCR test came back positive. So, you know, my primary care physician put me on uh, two weeks of isolation at home, which worked out very well. It actually got extended to a three weeks in isolation at home. You know, the miracle was that the rest of my family did not catch it. So we were effective doing the self-isolation at home. So that um, was, you know, a firsthand experience. But fortunately, you know, I was able to work from home and it wasn't overly disruptive. Um, And, you know, I would say pretty well recovered and vaccinated. Um, Though, interestingly, the sense of smell and taste is 
I would say only at 75%. So that's one of the oddities that I'm still experiencing. Professionally, again, I think personal, you know, for my personal workability, um, it slowed things down, but being able to work from home was very, I was very fortunate. Wow, I'm sorry to hear that. I know the exhaustion during COVID has been, you know, widely reported, and I can imagine you having to extend it. I'm surprised you even got some work done. It's been really bad, and the long-term effects. What we're calling long COVID, and you know, one of the moderate symptoms going, I think, almost presiding over eight months is very common. I do hope that you know the sense of taste and smell comes back. How did you get interested, you know, in long-term care? Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because, you know, in your opening presentation, you were talking about, you know, what can you do with a legal degree? And you can do a lot, you know, and despite all the TV shows about the profession of law, it's a great education. And that's prepared me to function in a lot of different areas um, that, again, were focused on what I refer to as integral human development, mission-driven organizations. So I started out in environmental law, saw the connection between all the environmental regulations, which were driven by emissions um, and exposure, you know, through air, water, and chemicals primarily, uh, to and the impact on human health. So it was a, a natural segue into the health sector. And I had done some work with some U.S. multinationals in med tech and uh, trauma uh, care, uh, orthopedic trauma, et cetera. And it was very interesting. Plus my time in Geneva, I was doing work as a consultant with the World Health Organization. And I'm, I still am a registered consultant with WHO. So the health arena was a natural flow from within the career I was in. Um, and long-term care, hooking up with NCAP, the National Certification Council for Activity Professionals, was really a matter of timing because I had just moved my family back to the Washington DC area. And as I was exploring and networking opportunities, uh, NCAP was looking for someone to really reorganize, restructure and take them to where they needed to be as deliverers of the social model of care in long-term care. Well, that's perfect timing. I'm glad you're in a place that you're able to make all these contributions. And you're so right. I think, you know, doing a, a degree in law actually teaches you to ask the right questions, right? You know, you might not always have the answers, but you work towards it. But asking the right questions is really what's so important. You know, long-term care has been one of the areas that's been really affected in the pandemic. And I'm sure many individuals might not even be aware of what activity professional really does during the work. Can you shed a little more light on it? Right. Yeah. I find that a lot of people say we don't even know that an activity professional or life enrichment director existed. And the background for that is back in the, the early 80s, there was a federal requirement and there is a federal requirement that every nursing home or as we know them today as a skilled nursing facility must have an activity director. So there's a specific regulation or tag um, 680 that defines what the qualifications are for the activity director in a nursing home. And then when you look at what is the requirement, there's a tag or a regulation called 679 that outlines that 
every individual must have a care plan that includes the social model of care. So that facility or that community um, offering the long-term care must have a program that maintains or improves a person's physical, cognitive, and psychosocial well-being. So it's a regulatory requirement, similar to the regulatory requirements for medical and therapy and medicine, food, and, and all these things, that there is a requirement that an individual must have a care plan that maintains or optimizes physical function, cognitive function, overall psychosocial well-being. And that's what the activity director is responsible for and the activity staff are responsible to deliver that case by case, individual by individual, what we call person-centered care. Yeah, you know, and you touch on a very important subject. That is so important. You know, I think it's unfortunate we don't recognize that the, the social aspects of our lives are necessary component to lead a you know a healthy life. We know it somehow, like it, I think it's a net knowledge, but somehow it doesn't come out. There's always this hierarchy of focus on treatment than on prevention. You know, I really hope with the renewed focus we have had on the alma mater and the primary health care that, you know, this really moves understanding in the right direction. Like during the pandemic, it was pretty clear that isolation itself had these devastating effects. And you're talking of individuals, you know, that not only were subject to that, but also these other factors that come in really trying to get to that level to lead a life that's meaningful. You know, one of the things during the pandemic that we cannot ignore is the disproportionate number of deaths in nursing homes and, you know, other long-term care facilities. How has this been for activity professionals? Well, that, you know, you touched on a lot there about the, the emphasis on treatment of a, of a diagnosis or an illness or a medication that's required and, and a, a great lack of attention to staying healthy and healthy aging and the importance of the social model of care broadly defined to be that physical and, and mental stimulation um, and the, the psychosocial, I mean, music and arts and, and engagement and, and song and all those wonderful <laughs> things that do keep us healthy, yet we know in time the aging process will catch up to us in some way and manifest. So what we've seen within the long-term care sector from the activity perspective is that long-term care has in many respects been blown up because the emphasis on infection control. So in addition to lots of personal protective equipment, um, isolation has dominated the, the, the social life of, of residents. And you've got a, an elimination of volunteers coming in or greatly restricted. Same thing with family visits. Group activities have been either reduced to very small groups or non-existent. There's a whole pressure on one-on-one -on -one delivery of activities. And of course, that's a huge time commitment, a burden. Um, it's very disruptive when in, instead of being able to hold group activities, you now have to do one-on-ones with everybody. And do you have that time? It's so the demands on the caregivers, you know, both on the clinical medical side, particularly CNA, certified nursing assistants, has gone through the roof. But our activity professionals have been feeling it as well. Um, a lot of our activity professionals are female, women of color, older, 
They're drawn to this profession to care for elders because they are fulfilled by the work, the quality of the work. So they've been ta- they've had a, an unusual burden on themselves as well. And, and we know that's also translated into higher percentages of death um, among the elderly because they're vulnerable to begin with. Yeah, that must be unfortunate, especially as you said, many of these people that are drawn to the profession because they want to care. And then seeing the realities during the pandemic of, you know, people dying, that must have been really hard for them as well. You know, and that's a very good point you touched upon that not only was it underpaid and unrecognized sector, but now the demands of it time-wise have increased. So definitely, you know, how do you build for that? And, you know, definitely these are things to look at. But I'm also interested to know, I know during one of our previous conversations, you mentioned how mental health conditions of the residents can already make it hard to achieve some of their health goals. And, you know, knowing that the pandemic itself imposed further stressor, how has this been for residents? Well, I think without doubt, the COVID pandemic has exacerbated mental health issues for residents as well as the workforce. Um, And that's really demanded that there be an emphasis on self-care for the workforce, um, but also a need to intervene on the residents. The isolation in particular leads to individuals to be, you know, to, to exacerbate and intensify their mental health uh, issues, uh, depression. And, and we know that, um, once those mental health issues manifest, it, it increases um, how quickly a person can diminish in their, in their physical health, mental health, um, you know, cognitive abilities. So, you know, it's really been disruptive and there's huge mental health impacts. I mean, we've seen it across society, but again, you know, the elderly, particularly if they're already experiencing some sort of cognitive decline, which we know is a natural exactly. process of aging, doesn't happen to everybody, but we know that it is a part of the aging process. So you add some sort of mild cognitive uh, challenge to the mix and the individuals are further confused as to why the isolation is happening in the first place. Well, yes, you're definitely right. You know, the interrelationship between our mental and physical health. And we have to know that this is a life course approach, right? As we age, the things that are going to come about and we need to better prepare, you know, the system itself is leading. I can imagine, you know, being in your position, having not to even see the residents, the people that you supervise and work with. How have you been managing your mental health during this time? Yeah, you know, fair, fair and important question. You know, everybody needs to reflect on that. And, you know, I think early, I just mentioned this need for self-care and a big part of that is how do you maintain, you know, an equilibrium? You know, uh, I am fortunate enough to be able to work from home. I am fortunate enough that my job hasn't, you know, I still have my job. You know, it generates the resources through our certification um, that we haven't had to let anybody go. So I'm very fortunate. Now, I also think, you know, the ability to remain resilient, if you will, relies, it depends a lot upon what you have experienced and learned um, as an individual. You know, I was fortunate enough to be raised, you know, by parents who had a a shared value system 
And they, you know, we were very active. Yeah, I was active in, you know, as a newspaper delivery boy <laughs> and as a boy scout, uh, Eagle Scout, you know, and uh, all sorts of sports, you know, th- all these things that I learned as a, as a youth and maintained through grammar school, high school, college, you know, I think these are all skills that um, you then apply, you know, in your career and as an adult. So I, I think it, it's really um, forced this isolation and the pandemic has forced, you know, us as a family to look at how do we, you know, maintain resilience as well, not just on the individual part, but, you know, what do we need to do to, to stay healthy overall? And that's get outside, main, use technology to connect with family and friends. You, you do what you have to do. But unfortunately, again, you know, we're blessed with the resources to be able to do that. And not everybody is. That's so true. You touch upon, you know, very important thing that sometimes we forget is being grateful for the privileges we have. You know, we've talked about for us being able to isolate is not a reality for many people right, for us to be able to leverage technology and continue to do the work we do. This is definitely things that we need to be grateful for every day. You know, resilience is um, definitely the key for both growth and development. And this is true, both personally and even professionally. I'm thinking, you know, the NCAP must have had its share of being forced to make, you know, changes in their operations. How has NCAP coped with this? Yeah, it, it's really been a roller coaster. Um, when I was brought on five years ago, I had the mandate from the board to reorganize and restructure. And we had a, a solid four to five year strategic plan, which is always, you know, they're always going to change uh, mm-hmm. anyway. Um, and then you add the COVID pandemic to it and boom, we've had to make a lot of adjustments. So we did a lot of reaching out to others you know, the allied health professionals that are in our same sector, the certified nursing assistants and their, and their, their professional associations, you know, the, the nurses, 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 they're, they're really driving so much of the care, the medical directors, the administrators, you know, the business side, because the bottom line is the bottom line. They don't want to add any costs. So we were looking at, okay, if we know there's a federal and state mandate for activity programs, how do we adjust? And we've had to do a number of things. We've had to update the curriculum with the best practices and the guidance from the regulators on infection control. All right. We also know the regulators, and we're going to see this coming out in the coming months and years, uh, emphasis on quality of life, because that is what the pandemic shown a very bright spotlight on is the quality of life of the residents significantly decreased. You know, you, you can point to any sort of metric there from in, including deaths. Um, so there was a need for more staff to understand the social model of care and have the skills and the knowledge to deliver person-centered care. So we've adjusted our curriculums, the content in particular, we have made our curriculums for certification available to more of that workforce. And in particular, the direct support services, not not just activity professionals and not, uh, and including the clinical medical side, but mostly those individuals who interact on a daily basis, whether that's providing dietary needs, nutrition, food, housekeeping, laundry, environmental controls of the system, 
they're all a community and they all need know need to know how to interact with the individuals who reside there because that is their home mm -hmm. we understand what needs to get right we're like okay this is where we want to get somebody to achieve the quality of life that we want but how do you get there and especially in a field like you said you know mcap feels that role of certifying you know looking over the training what is really required and that's so important because getting to the end point and how do you do it regulating in a space that so far has not always had uniform regulations is is very, very important. Have you, you know, thought about other, you know, things that you were looking at to update on certifications to reflect some of the lessons that we have learned from COVID? And if you can share with us. Yeah, sure. I mean, infection control is the, is the biggest piece. Um, and the medical clinical side, the nursing side, they, they already have that handle. That's part of what they, they learn. That's a competency they must have. And the, every nursing home has an infection control person designated for that, as well as, you know, the various levels of nursing and the medical director. So that whole side of the shop knows what needs to be done. But this other side, whether it's the activity professionals or all the other direct support, you know, workforce, um, they are now part of this requirement for infection control. So there's infection control is a big part of it. There's other areas that have been added like, um, because it relates to quality of life, quality of life, like um, diversity and inclusion, you know, the whole accepting the great diversity that exists inside of these communities, especially as the aging population of, of our country, of our society increases. So it's only gonna become more diverse. Um, Trauma-informed care, that's a new area because again, the COVID has exacerbated or sensitized people to these triggers that would cause uh, trauma. And that needs to be, um, that has been added to our curriculum. So those are specific examples where our curriculum has been adjusted. And then just overall with the language and the skills for person-centered care, a lot of basic communication techniques. How do you really listen? You referenced earlier the importance of asking questions. You have to find out what that individual resident, what the person really enjoys, what motivates them, what their interests are. That's what you need to develop individualized care plans so that you can, again, optimize their physical function, cognitive function, and psychosocial well-being. Exactly. And, you know, in the person-centered care, we cannot forget that, you know, the activity professionals, though they deliver the care, they themselves are persons. And how do we fit their self-care into, into the curriculum is, you know, as important as how they can help us take care of the residents. You definitely have your work cut out for you. And I, and I really hope we start recognizing the importance of care workers, like I said, you know, them being persons as well as a provider vulnerable population, the necessary care so we can keep them as healthy as possible. You know, though this pandemic has had devastating consequences because of its extensive geographical reach and virulence, but it's also the first time we've really been able to have a vaccine develop so quickly. How has the rollout of vaccines been like for residents? Yeah, that's a, it's been fascinating because it quickly, we, we know from the start that the, the world shifted to focus on this as a priority and the ability to focus on it in large part came down to whether a society or an organization had the resources to dedicate to it. So the initial reaction, of course, was infection control. But this whole vaccine thing has been fascinating to watch. 
Um, and we know that in the healthcare space, um, mm -hmm. the workforce was vaccinated early on and residents were vaccinated early on. You know, I think there was a, a reflection on the values of society to say, not only are healthcare workers mm -hmm. and, uh, a priority, but the aged, you know, there's a reflected a respect, you know, whether that translates in to the same quality of care, which we know it doesn't, we still know that the number one determinant in, of health is, is financial economics. The more money you have, the healthier you are statistically. So yet at the same time, we had uh, a fairness of focusing on elders uh, who were in long-term care. So that was a positive reaction to the crisis. Now, what's, what's interesting is what we are, what I'm hearing from our, from our activity professionals who work in skilled nursing facilities is even though they were vaccinated months ago, over six months ago, there are increasing occurrences, recurrences of infection, perhaps not with the same severity of symptoms, but you know, I, I, one of our board members is working from home because she tested positive. And uh, even though she's very mild symptoms and uh, has been vaccinated over six months. So now we're looking at, oh my gosh, how long is that vaccine coverage good for? And will we need boosters? Yeah, so, so that's where, where there's going to be a lot of attention and focus and research now is how long do these vaccines last? Um, and do we have to deal with boosters or the mutations of that virus? It's still very much an unknown. Well, you, you're right. I think this is something, it's a wait and see approach, right? We're still trying to learn. It's true that it has been developed so quickly. We, we are hearing reports of some of the side effects of these vaccines and what it is. But certainly one of the things that putting our health workers and the elderly first was a move in the right direction. We needed to get them prepared you know, protected. These were people that were on the front lines or people who were the most vulnerable. You know, I remember one of our conversations when you said that because of, you know, the lack of understanding of the social model of care, many of the activity professionals are not really deemed essential, right? And the hazard pay benefits are not always the same. So I think that must be something that needs to be rectified. You know, I'm really hoping with the WHO declaring this year as the International Year of Health and Care Workers, you know, activity professionals really get the recognition they deserve. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I appreciate that. And that is part of our uh, objective. Um, you'll see that across the U.S., there's new legislation at the federal level, and there's a number of uh, initiatives by the National Associations for Certified Nursing Assistants in particular, the CNAs. So again, when, when we say healthcare workers, so often we default to that whole medical and clinical side, <laughs> which is what happens to be how the US uh, in particular, and, and many Western countries approach aging as, it's, as if it's a disease that requires medical interventions medicines, therapies, equipment, technology, and this sort of thing. And there's still this, this lack of emphasis on healthy aging and the role of the social model of care and all that that encompasses so, to, so that you do age as well as possible. And the activity professionals, along with lots of other frontline staff, you know, do not by many uh, formal standards fall into that role of essential because it's not written into the regulation as able to be reimbursed 
for the care they provide. It also represents huge hours in the day. You know, when there's a medical intervention, you know, they might come in to just do a treatment, a therapy or provide medicine, but that is a, that has a price associated with it. That boom is acknowledged for that amount of time. But you know, the, what do you do with the rest of the day? How do you keep the person busy and stimulated the rest of the day, physically, cognitively, and emotionally? And, and, and that's what's undervalued. Yeah, you're exactly right. I, I think we forget that healthy aging, what you said, is not a disease. It is the natural progression of life. And what we need to do is support it. And it really makes sense, not only from a moral point of view and what we should do as society, but also from even economic point of view, you know, the health burden that results from having people having aged with the right health considerations is enormous. But I think we really do forget it so much. Sure. Thank you so much for increasing in you know, our understanding of these harsh conditions that, you know, care workers you know, work under while providing the desperately needed care. And they're not always accommodated, as you mentioned, in the traditional medical system. This, you know, this whole rhetoric needs to change. And one of the things you pointed out earlier was that it being, you know, more female dominated persons of color. Sometimes I think, you know, the contributions are overlooked for many reasons. And I'm really glad that you're doing this work. I'd love to hear if you have some last comments before we wrap up the session. Well, I very much enjoyed the conversation and it's an opportunity to uh, emphasize the importance of this social model of care, activities that enrich the life of, of elders um, mm -hmm. in whatever setting they're in, whether that's the nursing home or aging in place at home, which we're going to see grow enormously as the deferred place because it's one-tenth the cost to provide care at home than wow. it is in an institution such as a skilled nursing facility. So I would offer that what you are doing with the Health Law Institute, particularly taking this conversation to a global scale, you know, allows us to take the, the great lessons learned that we have within a system like the US where there's a lot of funds spent on research and therapies and this, but to really mesh and complement the two, the social and the medical side. And there's a huge opportunity and need for education, for families, you know, for the profession, uh, because we know the aging, the numbers of the aging population are going to increase beyond estimates and have an impact on society. So I think there's a role for us to play together to get this message out there. I really look forward to that and I would love to help any way I can. Thank you again, Peter, for this very informative session. I look forward to all of you joining our next episode on August 12th. As always, we welcome your suggestions, questions, and comments on our social media pages or email us directly at podcast at healthlawinstitute.org.